All right, so good morning and Merry Christmas. It's still Christmas. How many knew that? We are still on Christmas. So uh, this is, uh, and yeah, Happy New Year, because that's, that's tonight and tomorrow. Um, but uh, yeah, this is the only Sunday that we actually get in the Christmas season before we turn the calendar over to Epiphany. Um, and tradition, uh, traditionally, the, uh, the Christmas lectionary readings are um, very full of hope. And if Advent was like a season of, of waiting and looking for God to come, uh, then Christmas says uh, he has and he's here and here is what he is doing. Um, so we're going to camp out, you know, you've heard all the readings this morning. We're going to camp out mostly in John this morning, and then we'll let the other readings kind of speak in uh, where they do. And um, in typical fashion for me, I want to try to uh, frame our readings out around uh, three words this morning, and they all begin with H this time. Uh, you know that I cannot resist a little alliteration, um, which I think is actually alliteration itself. So uh, we're going to go with three this morning, three H's. They are these. Uh, they are the hiding, the herring, and the chutzpah. So you just want to try those? Can you guys say them back? Okay, so they are the hiding, the herring, and the chutzpah. And when you say it, you should almost spit on the person who is sitting right in front of you. Um, so if you're not familiar... How many people are familiar with uh, chutzpah as a word? It's a Yiddish word. I grew up in the Northeast, so you might know it. And the way you're supposed to spell it from if you're Yiddish is with a C-H, but we Americanized it and just put an H, and that is convenient for my sermon. So, <laughs> all right. so um, uh, before um, we jump in, two things. Uh, let me pray quickly, and then maybe whoever's working sound can make me a little less hot. I feel a little hot. Um, and it's kind of, yeah, so. All right, so Father, we thank you for the word that you've sung over us this morning, both in scripture and in song. Um, pray, Lord God, that you would do what only your word could do, which is to put us to death and then raise us up all over again um, and make new creation uh, where once there was old. We give you thanks in Jesus Christ and all God's people said, Amen. All right, so uh, before we really jump in too deeply, we probably need to say a word about John. Um, if you've spent any time in the church and in the scriptures, um, then it doesn't take very long uh, when you read John to realize that he doesn't sound like anybody else. Uh, he's a very creative preacher, a word artist, really. Um, and this first chapter here, uh, especially John 1, uh, Greek experts will, uh, will tell you that it's a hymn. And, um, and no ordinary hymn at that, but it is chock full of allusions to and imagery from uh, the very first chapter of the scriptures, Genesis chapter 1, which also turns out to be in its original Hebrew, a hymn um, unto itself. So uh, what John is doing really uh, in, in really pretty cool artistic fashion is he's telling the story of the world and our story in the story of Jesus. He's just kind of meshing them together. Um, and the line on us is, from the beginning, uh, we human beings are hiders. Specifically, we are hiders from God. And that line has not changed. Jesus, the Word, who is God and was with God in the beginning and through whom all things were created, who is the light of all men, John says, came to his own, that means all people, not just Israel, and they didn't receive him. 
So John will take a few chapters in typical John fashion to actually get around to explaining why, and eventually he does in chapter three explain why this is. And he says it's because we love the darkness. And primarily we love it because we fear the light, because it exposes us in our evil. So sometimes we think like a darkness is just sort of being a metaphor for doing shady stuff. But that's not quite what John is saying. He's saying darkness is the place where we go to seek cover for the shady stuff that we do and have done. So darkness is a metaphor for hiding ourselves from God. And we've got a long history of hiding ourselves from God, right? It is in our DNA. This goes all the way back to the garden, right? And John is obviously with that whole in the beginning stuff and that mantra is trying to take us back in our minds at least to the very beginning. He wants us to get to the root of things. And it's a complex root, um, if you were with us in um, Sunday school for First Things, we combined a few weeks back the First Things class with the youth, um, which was really fun. And we covered this in, in pretty good uh, detail, that our, our first parents, Adam and Eve, were presented with two sacramental trees in the garden. And by sacramental, we mean not merely symbolic or representative, but like our own sacraments of water, bread, and wine, they are real participations in the things to which they point. They were given to eat, it says, from every tree in the garden, including the tree of life. The only tree they were not to eat of was the tree of wisdom or the knowledge of good and evil which is really just shorthand for the tree of law. So the popular Christian take on the fall these days, it's not our take, but it is like the out there sort of take on the fall, is um, to read it as God setting up a sort of obedience test for our first parents, which then they, of course, go on and proceed to fail. But that is just too simple and not only too simple, but it's wrong. And if we read it that way, um, if we read it as primarily being about disobedience, then we get the rest of scripture and gospel and life in Christ wrong too. We go out the wrong door and it's really hard to come back when you've headed out in that direction. The problem in the garden isn't merely or even primarily disobedience. It's what happened in the disobedience. Does that make sense? They chose the law tree. And what the law tree is, is the decision to take their stand on the law's demands. It's this gamble that they can have and do life by their own wits, apart from God. And that on their own merits, they can be something that God has to regard. So God said it would be the death of them and the death of the whole world, not because he's mean or because he's punitive, but because we can't live by law. There's no life in the law tree, but they bet that there was. And so immediately after eating from the law tree, they feel the weight of the law of God and the fact that they can't measure up to it, they are exposed by it. 
And the first thing they do is, well, does anyone remember the first thing they do is? They all of a sudden become seamstress and tailor, right? And they begin to sew fig leaves together to cover their nakedness and shame. And then the second thing that happens is, is God comes what? walking for them in the cool of the garden, as apparently he often did. That is not a metaphor, by the way. He can't find them. Why? Because they've hidden themselves even more deeply in the bush. Their fear is that God is coming for their heads when in actuality he is coming to forgive and to restore them. That's what law does to us. We, and um, by we, I just kind of mean sort of popular Christianity, which unfortunately we all suffer under, has latched onto the story of the gospel as being a story of a God who is angry, literally angry as hell with us for our disobedience and that he is just itching with wrath to smite us. And that only by believing in Jesus are we spared the punishment that he experienced on the cross. But that is not the story of the triune God according to the scriptures. That's actually the story of um, God according to the pagans. It's the story of the world according to all of Israel's neighbors. Our story is of a God who never demanded any sort of obedience or put us through performance tests or that we would earn his good pleasure. It's always, always from the very beginning and remains the story of a God who says, let me be a father to you whose children are his delight and whose children delight in him. What's wrong with the world, according to John, is that we rejected that And we insisted on life apart from him. And that the law appeared to us as the way that we could do it. And what John's saying here is that that's what sent the world into death and chaos in the beginning. And that is what keeps sending the world into death and chaos even now. We keep repeating the sins of the fathers. And we keep hiding in consequence That's darkness, according to John. And we love it. Because as sons of Adam and daughters of Eve, it's all that we really know. It's in our DNA. It's in our blood. This vicious cycle of law-keeping, only to then be buried by the shame that it exposes in us and then hide from God. So that's why the lectioners, the liturgists, the people who are the architects of the lectionary calendar of readings that we read from today. Um, That's why they've paired this John uh, reading with Galatians. Because as Paul tells it, all that the law ever does is indict us. No one is ever vindicated by the law. There's always some way in which we break it or fail to do some part of it. And even if we should manage to cover the bases um, according to the letter, then we fail to do it according to the Spirit. And really, that's the whole point. If we ever doubted that fact, that's the whole point of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. 
Um, it is not to tell us how to live in such a way by the law that we could get life from it. So please, I have no idea who in the world is turning into or around the world this um, podcast, but if you are anywhere near a church that preaches anything like that, say no more sermon series on telling me how to live by the law from the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus preached that sermon to show us precisely that we can't and that all attempts to do so only expose the real darkness of our hearts and are only a doubling down on the original sins of our fathers. So Jesus' goal with that sermon and Paul's goal with his letter to the church in Galatia is to kill our hopes in the law and swear, our, swear us off of it, to show that it was really never our friend. It's not bad in itself. It's holy from God, but it's of no good to us. It just heaps, as Paul says, sin upon sin. Paul says it quite plainly in the reading that um, uh, the kids read this morning. Before faith came, we were imprisoned and guarded under law. So I don't know how optimistically you have to read that to think that maybe there's something positive in being imprisoned and guarded. But if you've ever been under imprisoned, guarded watch, you know that there's nothing positive there. But then, right, so they do pretty good in the translation there, but then the King James and a few other translations go on and like the very next verse, um, I think it's just they're unable to resist the law-loving Adamness in them. They go on to describe it in some translations, the law, as being a tutor to bring us to Christ, as if it were someone who sat down with you after school and helped you do better on your math so that you could score better on your college entry exams and get into a better college. That's how it makes it sound. That's a horrible translation. The Greek there is something more like not tutor, but cruel schoolmaster. So, and no offense to Mr. George, who is the exception to the rule, but is there any other kind? <laughs> right? Um, Think back on all the English boarding school films and novels that you've ever read, and the schoolmaster is always what? The villain. This is, um, we, I have a picture of my favorite schoolmaster. We'll see if we've got, <laughs> you might recognize her, that is Dolores Umbridge of um, Hogwarts Academy. Um, that is what Paul has in mind when he writes, the law is a cruel schoolmaster. Um, Luther translated it better. Um, he said the translation is not to bring us to Christ, but to drive us to Christ. The law was our cruel schoolmaster driving us into the arms of Jesus and gospel. So as Paul actually explains in the, in the, in the preaching uh, they're actually the preceding verse to the one that we're, we're looking at. He says, God locks the whole world up in sin under the law so that the only way they will find him is by faith. Or to put that another way, he refuses to be found in or by law keeping, but only in his grace. Not as the giver of commands, but as the giver of righteousness. Or as John puts it here, for, for from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. So the law turns out to have been all along what we would call a red herring. It's a diversion. 
It's a dead-end street. And yet, in the fallenness of our sin, right, the fallenness of our sin is such that we actually prefer the idle, law-keeping God that we've made after our own image. We prefer him to the God who actually tells us who he is. We're addicted to it. So this is what John's going to go on to say in chapter 3, that um, though Christ came into the world not to condemn, but to save it, we actually preferred the condemnation. How on earth can that be? Right? What kind of sick puppies are, are we? So I, w- I want to read to you just a, a quick excerpt from um, uh, one of my uh, favorite theologians, and I love the way he explains this. Listen to him. He says, this is Jesus, and this is the judgment. But the word is crisis there, um, from which we get our word crisis. So hear it that way. And this is the crisis, that the light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light, because their deeds were evil. So he goes on to say this. Yes, Jesus says, there is a judgment And that judgment still stands because the law and the prophets that I came to fulfill still stand. There remains a judgment because the law remains forever your beauty. And when I come to you in my fulfillment of all its righteous demands, I will only make the ugliness of your sin look a thousand times worse. But then he says, but hear me, but I do not judge you. Those are Jesus' words. You judge yourself by taking your stand on the law's demands rather than on my righteousness, which is yours for the believing. Right? So this is the crisis. We feel in the crisis because this is what John is is hoping to get at. We are hopeless law lovers who embrace its condemnation rather than the free gift of righteousness that Jesus bestows on all of creation. But... And thanks be to God, in the gospel, there is always a what? There's a but. But to those who did receive him and believed, he granted sonship in the kingdom of God. So I I love how John does this, and I love how quickly he does this. Um, It's brilliant. He doesn't want to just tell us there is a crisis. He wants us to feel the crisis inside of ourselves. And here's what he says. Everyone has rejected him. But to those who believed and received, and we're supposed to be at that point crying out, wait, whoa, whoa, hang on. How can it be that everyone has rejected him and yet to all who believed and received, if by nature we're all rejectors of him? And that we run from the light of Christ into the darkness of our own self-condemnation and we like it. So we're supposed to hear echoes if you're, if you're scripturally grounded, literate, if it's, if it's running through your head all the time, then what we should hear is Peter basically crying out then in questioning puzzlement to Jesus, well then, who can be saved? Or we should hear with Paul in Romans chapter 7 um, after um, wrestling with all of this, who then will save me from this wretched, which literally means death-riddled, body? And the answers are in order. The first one, you, you guys probably remember them. With man, it is what? Impossible. But with God, all things are possible. 
Or if we just want to take Paul's very simple answer, thanks be to God, Jesus Christ. Paul means that literally. Jesus does it. So uh, I'm going to read from my guy here again. Lost sheep don't have to ask the shepherd to find them. Lost coins don't have to make long-winded prayers to get the housewife to hunt for them. And lost sons who may think that they are only allowed to ask for some plausible, sawed-off substitute for salvation are always going to be totally surprised by the incredible, unasked-for party that just falls into their laps. All they have to be is lost. Not fancy lost, not perceptively lost, or repentantly lost, just plain lost. And just plain dead, too. Not humbly dead, engagingly dead, or cooperatively dead, just dead. I, if I be lifted up, Jesus says, will draw what? All to myself. The sheep, the coin, the son, the widow, the whole sorry lot of you. You don't have to do a blessed thing, make a single prayer, or have a legitimate case. I do it all. Amen? Amen. Jesus himself, with the power of the Spirit, comes to us. And he makes himself known that we might believe the gospel and receive him. He hasn't left it to anybody else, let alone ourselves. For neither has the power, right, nor even the desire to do it. I often think of that, and I'm going to age myself here, um, uh, kids. I often think of that dialogue in the film Forrest Gump. Everyone here has seen Forrest Gump, right? But maybe not our kids. <laughs> I'm just like, Forrest who? Um, but there's this little exchange where L- Lieutenant Dan, right? Lieutenant Dan says to Forrest, Forrest, have you found Jesus? And you guys remember Forrest's answer? I didn't know I was supposed to be looking for him. <laughs> Forrest... Exactly. Forrest may not look that bright, but he's bright. It is not not that there is a salvation out there in Jesus if we have the good sense to go looking for it or if we're lucky enough to have someone point out to us where it is. Our hope is in the fact that the finder has a passion for finding. He finds us, right? What's Paul saying? That even faith is a gift and not of our own doing that we might not dare boast in ourselves. That's what Isaiah is singing of in that reading from the 61st chapter. He says, God himself will cause righteousness to spring forth on the earth. As a garden causes what is sown to spring up, so the Lord will cause praise to spring up before all nations. So real quick, um, and then we'll, we'll do the, the last bit, the, um, the chutzpah. Can we do like a quick eddy out? Because um, I feel like we have to stress this part, um, not because we don't teach it here, but because out there we can be moved to believe otherwise. And so I just want to make sure that we understand this clearly. Faith is not a transaction. We don't get forgiveness in exchange for our faith. Does that make sense? Somehow the the church at large has become really convinced um, that it was in the getting people saved business, like putting them into a new car deal. 
and then having them sign on the dotted line a contract to clean up their acts and pay God back for the good deal that he's given them. And that is not just a little off, that is egregiously off. That is quintessentially hiding the gospel under a bushel. There is not a hint of transaction in the gospel. God is, God is not holding on to anyone's salvation clasped in a hand tightly behind his back waiting for us to make the right choice or make some pledge or say the right thing before he'll hand it over. It's already been given. And as John himself um, explicitly reminds us in one of his letters, it's been given to the whole world. He has forgiven our sins, but not our sins only, he says, but what? The sins of, finish the sentence, the whole world, and world there in, is cosmos. The whole work of Christ, the whole work of evangelism or good newsing is not to get us saved, but to convince us, to urge over us the salvation we already have in him. So this is what John means when he says, by, by granting us the right of childhood in God. What he's doing is, is he's pulling out the chair at the table of the Father and saying, really, this seat belongs to you, courtesy of Jesus, who is God with the Father. Sit yourself down and feast on the gift of life in him. All your sins are forgiven you in his name. Repent. And the Hebrew there is, and the kids know this very well, the Hebrew for repent, it's not the American, um, I, in the Americanized uh, pietistic version of I swear to do better and I'm really sorry. Repent is turn around in Hebrew. And it just means stop chasing the red herring of our fathers and our mothers and sit yourself down and believe the good news for goodness sake right? Not so that we might try to live in such a way as we no longer need the forgiveness of sins, but to rest in the forgiveness of sins that's been given us. Okay, so that leaves us with the chutzpah. Do you guys want to say that just for fun? Chutzpah, Yiddish, for a couple of English and Spanish um, slang words that I don't think I can use from here. Um, <laughs> but I'm going to give you another Yiddish word, moxie. Um, uh, nerve, spunk, unfaltering, cocky confidence. Our God has chutzpah. That when his word, his logos, as John calls him, Jesus, goes out, it does not come back empty, but accomplishes precisely what it says. Right? The word of God who is Jesus is the same word that went out in the very, very beginning. He is the light that God um, spoke that gave life to all things in the first place, that made everything out of absolutely nothing. And what John's saying is, is that same light is going out again, this time to make a new creation. And here's the thing about light, he says. There's nowhere where it doesn't go. He is the light that lighteth what? Finish that sentence. All men. So yes, we may barricade ourselves in our condemnation, preferring, self-insisting little rooms of darkness. But Christ brings the heavenly party. And notice it's always described by Jesus 
The, the kingdom of God is a heavenly party. He brings the heavenly party in all the light that is his life right to our doorsteps. That's the picture. That's the vision that John later has in the book of Revelation. It says he stands outside the door with that heavenly party and he knocks. And anyone who opens, he will come in and he will eat with him. Now, here's the thing that strikes me about doors, especially in that day, but even still now. None of them are airtight. I've installed five exterior doors in the last two years, and I think eight interior ones, and I know it. <laughs> no matter how good the carpenter, there is always a crack. And so I'm reminded of a line from one of my favorite poets of uh, this age who observed regarding God and the gospel that this is by design, that there is a crack in everything because that's how the light gets in. That's your picture from the youth this week. If we open that door of what could seem like our own accord and voluntary choosing, it's not. It's because the light got through and moved us to open it. But in my experience with the scriptures and with life, ministry, with y'all, I've also noticed that God doesn't take no for an answer. He may politely knock um, for a while and let the light seep in bit by bit until it does its thing. But eventually, he stops knocking politely and he kicks in the door like a SWAT team. <laughs> because the finder doesn't ask whether we'd like to be found any more than we ask to be found. He's determined to find. He is determined to bestow his grace on everything and everyone. So this is the last week in Christmas, but what does the angel announce? Fear not, for I bring the gospel of great joy. That's what he says. Mega joy, I think, as Richard expounded it. That will be for whom? All people. Peace on earth and goodwill towards all mankind upon whom his favor and grace rests. So this is the same God who said back in Ezekiel that he desired not the death of a single sinner. And to Peter, that he was not slow to make good on his promises, but was in fact patient towards all mankind, not willing for any to perish. Right? I know personally that we have lists that are a mile long of loved ones, of neighbors, of relatives that we may not um, love as much as we love our neighbors, <laughs> who keep us up nights praying. And as Pastor Richard reminds us every year, your prayers for their salvation top his list. So can I ask you this? You who are evil, that's what Jesus calls us. You who are evil, is God not more gracious than you and me? Me who is evil, is, is God not more patient than me? Does God not desire them to know the joy of being his children more than you and I desire it for them? And the answer is what? Of course. His word of assurance to us is, have faith in the finder to find. After all, he found you. He found me. It is far more his passion than it is ours. 
He, unlike you and unlike me, is actually faithful. He is the God of chutzpah. And as we're fond of saying around here, he who is faithful will what? Surely do it. So the hiding, the herring, the chutzpah, and the gracious word of God to us of his gospel in Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. Amen.